Welcome to Because People Count, the Accountancy Europe podcast. This podcast tackles the hottest topics for the European accountancy profession. Get your need-to-know update from Brussels. Hello again. We're taking a wide-lens approach today. We will look at how the economy is working and why it needs to change. Our financial systems, accounting and taxes, and more are all based around an economy of physical products and profits. We have reliable and trusted systems to assess and evaluate the financial bottom line. Yet we all know that basing a company's profits only on the sales of products does not give a full picture. It ignores the value from intangibles, such as intellectual property, research and development, environmental damage, and employee well-being. Right now, we treat these as drains on a company's value when they could be the foundation upon which we build a more sustainable economy. Is the system we use today broken? Or can it be reshaped to consider value and capital differently? I'm very pleased to be talking to Andrew Watson, co-founder of Rethinking Capital, a think tank focused on how the rules that govern the economy need to be rewritten to accommodate the transition from an industrial economy to an intangible economy. Andrew, can you please introduce yourself? I'm a father of five. So actually, the whole area of why I'm doing this becomes in sharp focus, given where the world and the economy is going right now. I'm a lawyer by background. I was an M&A lawyer. And then in 2001, I joined a startup and I was given a box of patents and a book called Rembrandt's in the Attic and a task of creating value out of them. And what's that now? That's 20 years and almost four months ago. I decided curiously after I'd been in that role to then dedicated myself to make sense out of intangibles. And that's what pretty much I've done since. As any inventor, you think they'll be done within around around six months, 20 years later. I think it's fair to say we've made it simple. We're a think tank. Our task is to update the rules that govern the economy. We've begun with economics, a new body of what we call normative economics, and then accounting. And our whole ethos has been what can we use that's already being used to retrofit rather than making up something new? For our audience, where is the problem? What are we dealing with here that accounting isn't providing a solution for? The transition to net zero is guaranteed to fail without a changing accounting practice. And why do we say that? It's because the incentives are upside down. An organization investing into the transition to net zero will be innovating, we have to innovate. If it was easy, we wouldn't have to innovate. We just flick a switch. So organizations are having to repurpose themselves to move around the commitments made by boards and CEOs and expectations of society. Accounting practice, because it hasn't kept up with the change in the reality, will treat all of those investments as cost on the income statement. The penalty, if we that's what we descri- uh, describe it as, is immediate and it's certain. And the more you invest, the higher the penalty which is bizarre. Whereas doing nothing and continuing to pollute the planet is rewarded. Your profits remain where they were before. So we're of the view that net zero is really only the sharp end of the focus because actually net zero is such an economic and social imperative. The problem is is accounting and the problem actually is accounting practice. Specifically, it's not the standards for the reasons that we'll talk about. But if you go more general, uh, and let's be a bit constructive, this is the third time in history that the economy has changed at its foundation levels. Um, There's a book called Futuromics by my colleague Robert McGarvey, which is a great read, not technical whatsoever. 
and it describes a history of asset revolutions. And in asset revolutions, the whole foundations of the economy change, the way we create value changes. And not surprisingly, the same pattern repeats, the economy changes, and then the rule, all the rules that govern the economy need to be adapted. And we're in this transitional phase where the economy has clearly changed and accounting has just forgot how to account for assets and liabilities. It just hasn't yet caught up with the reality. At the time of the Industrial Revolution, nobody had any concept that the environment was finite. Now that we know that we are running out of everything, and even if we're not running out of it, the quality of life that will be the result of what we've done it will be dramatically reduced. It is time. It is past time, probably, many would say, for a change in the structures and in the governing of everything. And it's interesting to me what you say about how maybe because we started the podcast with, with the question, is the system broken? And what you seem to say now is that possibly there is a way that without breaking everything down, but working within the structures that we have, as we said, reliable, trustworthy systems that have been put in place that people can verify, that they can help us move forward. Can you tell me a little bit more about how we come out of this and how do we change accounting? So I want to talk about what we've done, and then we'll talk about the effects and therefore the importance of accounting. So what have we done? Let's go super basic. But if you take uh, step one of GAP, if an expenditure has been incurred, the question should be asked, has an asset been created? There's different interpretations of that or, or different language used, but essentially for a layman, that's if I've spent money, is there something I've created which can create value for me? So immediately step one, unless you reach the conclusion that an asset hasn't been created, you cannot just expense it, full stop. And then you go into what's the definition of the asset? Again, I can, as for an accounting audience, I can do this with a bit more detail, actually. You know, so according to the ISB conceptual framework, paraphrased, it's a resource controlled by the entity from which there is potential for future economic benefits. So one, I've passed gap test one, and two, I've passed that it qualifies as an asset. And I suppose then the question is, what's it? In the example of the net zero transition, we consider it to be the social license between an organization and society as an intangible asset with indefinite life. Take a step back from that. And nearly everybody we talk to says, well, that's obvious. <laughs> I would say, why are we not doing that already? Which is rather nice about the elegance of which actually, I guess we've made it simple over such a long period of time that people go, well, this must be happening already. But it's not, particularly in a network world. Clearly, all organizations need a license from society. They have to have a reputation with society. Let's just go into the effects of that, though. And there are three that I really love to emphasize. The first is mindset. Suddenly, we've given value to what is valuable. It's awful that actually society needs to economically value something before it changes, but that's the way the world thinks and acts and decides. So if we can match the way it thinks and acts and decides, then in theory, we get people to change. It aligns the moral with the economic. So the example I've been given was Wilberforce going before the British Parliament to make the case of the abolition of slavery. And he went 17 years in a row on the moral case and failed every time. But when he made it economic, that steam engines were cheaper than slaves, it changed. Again, it's horrific to think that that's how we have to do things. And there's a really interesting theory of behavioral change here, which says we've changed something which is a negative and an immediate and a certain into a positive and immediate certain. And therefore, behavioral change says that people should therefore make a different decision. So that, that's one. 
two is it makes net zero into an exercise in building shareholder equity and profits. Flips the whole logic, and in which case, the theory at least again is that actually this will give rise to massive reallocation of capital towards those who are more sustainable around any social norm. But the third thing is, and this has blown my mind in the last few weeks as I've sort of gone around the world with this story, is actually the same accounting standards used for companies also apply to countries. And that, that has been mind-blowing. You think that actually the same standards could apply to an entity as a country or an entity as a company. So it, the effects are profound, notwithstanding the fact it's a, small, it's a small step. It's almost like standing on the border between two countries and actually you're one yard, so one meter, one side at one country, and then you step over a border and you're actually in another one. And it's amazing how simple the steps are for the profession. A lot of what you're talking about now, the kind of social contract, it's been picked up by quite a few companies. It's been picked up by the public sector as well. I believe in France, they were looking at a social role that companies should perhaps have. These discussions are coalescing over time. Different areas are beginning to say this is something that companies do need to pay attention to. And what I think is interesting about your argument is that you're saying it's not just something companies need to pay attention to, but they need to think of it as an asset. They need to think of it as something that is helping their company grow and is an economic argument for success. The other thing that I think is really interesting is adapting the accounting standards because it isn't the most shocking thing in the world for me to think that the accounting standards do have the ability to accommodate these kind of changes, because of course they are very much principles-based, where it's how an accountant makes use of those. And by changing definitions and adapting the scope of the accounting rules, that does allow for this very robust system to react to the changes and the challenges that we're facing today. Can you give us some examples of what a company that incorporates intangible value looks like? Um, I'll come back to the, the public sector uh, question a little bit later because that's also very exciting. But first, uh, let, let's focus on companies. I just want to pick up on one thing you just said, Andrew, which I think is so important in this whole area is words. I'm a lawyer by background. And of course, I've written 44 pages of a taxonomy and definitions of what everything is and what the social license is and where it derives from. But the beginning of wisdom is a definition of terms. And it's so true in this area that people don't quite know what an intangible is. My friends in Canada, my colleagues in Canada, Robert and Joe, have been working with SMEs for a long period of time. And I'll give you a couple of examples, which are huge, frankly, in the impact on a company. So the first one um, actually was under FASB. It was a, a California-based company. They had an analog product. They actually were taking it digital. They'd spent something like about 5.8 million, I think it was, on R&D over a number of years, all of which had been expensed. So when you looked at the company, it was not the sort of company you would ever lend to. It was highly loss-making, cumulative over a number of years. It had almost nothing on the balance sheet. So Joe went in and all we did was capitalize the cost of creation. We didn't go into looking at current value. We literally had cost of creation. And the business was, was transformed. I mean, Equity goes up by between three and four times, typically. Profitability goes up between two and three times, typically. And you look at that, and it's funny, the CEO of that business said, this is my business. This is my real business. This is not the business that actually my accountants tell me is, is my business. This is my business. And the great part of the story is that actually having been declined for a loan, the exact same bank manager actually gave the organization a line of credit for $3 million to take the product to market. 
that's a great story. It really is. And it uh, shows that because they've done the work, they've done the R&D, they've done the research, they've done the innovation, the product at the end will be that much stronger. That's a really interesting way of reimagining how a company can, can look when it comes to where the investment has gone into. And so even if at the end of the day, the balance sheet says, well, they haven't been selling this much, yes, but their next product has the know-how to be a game changer. Absolutely. And there's a great piece of IP in here, Andrea, which sort of I'm a great example of, which is the Edison quote, if I haven't failed 700 times, I've just worked out the 700 ways that won't work. That in itself is an asset. And you keep going at it and, it, and you learn from failure. This is now the moment that you bring it to the world, that you uh, explain the idea, you announce it to accountants, you announce it to countries and governments. It's about showing the world how it can be done better. To my knowledge, this has never been done before. So it is a little bit of asking a lot of important people what they believe, coming up with a theory of change, etc. But we've got nine levers to adoption that we've identified. This will all be adopted in practice. It does not need change in accounting standards. That's our strong belief. And interestingly, one of our wise guides said, if the market adopts it, what are the accounting standards authorities going to do? They can't exactly say, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. So it, it, our view is it will be adopted into practice through use. And we have a number of areas. So let's call at the moment what we have is a de facto standard for accounting for intangibles. We would call it normative accounting, but it's de facto standard. It's been developed with Harvard Business School so far. But then it's applied. So we've been talking today, Andrew, about the application net zero. Well, it also can be applied to SMEs, as the example I've just described. And therefore, all we're looking at, therefore, is applications of it. Where does it begin? We kind of see net zero as a beachhead because it's today's economic and social imperative. We do also see, however, that uh, SME recovery and the pandemic is very important as well. So the numbers are extraordinary as to how much is locked up in the economy that could be released if we really thought this through. And I say we as a profession. I might be co-opted in the profession at some stage. I go, <laughs> I doubt it. It could go either way, to be honest with you. But so we say, well, what are the most immediate applications and where therefore can you show real impact? So let's go net zero. First of all, we're looking at things like used by companies, adopted in decision making, capital allocation relating to net zero in 2022 and beyond. Let's look at two scenarios. Scenario one, where you apply accounting practice, everything gets written off. Or scenario two, where I apply normative accounting and actually suddenly I can do things I didn't believe were possible and spend amounts of money that I didn't believe I could spend. So that's the simplest possible experiments and pilots we're looking at, big companies, small companies, got people interested in doing both. Investors are really important in this. These asset revolutions always begin with investors because they're the ones who really want to know what the true worth of a company is. So we are talking to investor groups. I think things like TCFD, I mean, IS-37 is mentioned in TCFD. You can tell I'm a lawyer because I'll try this. Pages 37 and 38 of TCFD guidelines. When I got there, I went, oh my. And I looked at this, I mentioned IS-37 as a, an area for further research and 36, which I couldn't find out why that was relevant. Um, and FASB 5. So you, you know, if you can get into TCFD and we've got one accounting standards board in the world has just mandated TCFD and they want to understand whether our work would help as a standard way of reporting. 
I love the idea of the public at large. So we are talking to a design agency about, let's give this to a small group of young people and say, all big companies want you as consumers. They want you as talent. You tell them what you want to do. So what can we do as the accountancy profession? I would ask Accountancy Europe, and actually Europe in particular, to take a lead on this. Get ahead of it. Bring in some progressive accountants who are prepared to bend, if not break, some of the rules. People who can see, and, and this is not unusual, frankly, the number of conversations we have when people we, people tell us, well, this is obvious, or it's simple, or it's elegant, get it, just join us. I mean, we're looking for, to build our community out. We're building a technical accounting expert group. We've had a group of five of us have worked so far. But we got a lot of work to do. We have to continue to build out the standard in net zero and other social norms. So we of the view there's a consistent logic could apply to responsible tax or plastic waste, for example. So we, we want to head down those roads as well. I, I would say the other thing I would really like to see, though, I'd like to see somewhere in Europe, there be a pilot group set up just to say, let's just see what happens. We don't want to frighten anybody we can work with a group of companies they can try it out and see what difference it makes it doesn't have to be disclosed outside the organization but let's bring together a stakeholder group and just work out what this means when you do it the beauty of working with the accountancy profession for this is that there is constant learning and so if you get traction you there can be courses that are rolled out globally. If you get some of these professional bodies behind the ideas, it's just about getting that virtuous cycle going. I agree totally. And, and it's interesting. We've been talking to one accounting body, not in Europe, actually, who are prepared to put this on the competency map. It's a module called value creation. Also prepared to think about it qualifying for CPD points. Really interested that it actually renews the profession for young people. Imagine being qualified in a profession that could actually could actually change the world. And it's what the younger generation coming into the work world, that's what they want. They want to make a difference. And unfortunately, accounting doesn't have the reputation of being dynamic, of, you know, going beyond finance at the moment. And I think that's really a shame because there is a lot of potential for accountants to do more. And the step that is always just you assume it, but I always like to say out loud is the fact that once the accountants can begin to calculate things differently, weigh things differently for the bottom line, that allows the companies to change their decision making. And once they have the numbers in front of them, and it's not everything in the negative, but in fact, reevaluated in a way that says, oh, wait, we can take this risk, so to speak, and manage our land more responsibly. And just to overcome one thing that I think will naturally be an area of skepticism coming out of this. It's very hard to imagine companies actually doing this systematically because, of course, assets and equity go up and so does profit, but as is tax. And of course, the problem is it's the tax is still stuck in the old paradigm. If you do this properly, then actually you can substantially reduce the tax rate and substantially increase the tax take. But that requires policy. That's getting into you know, what's Europe, what's the world prepared to do to actually to enable organizations to release this because tax is behind the change in the economy as well. Oh, agreed 100%. It's the entire financial system that, that's still in this very industrial concept. I wanted to bring us back a little bit 
to the concept of the public sector, of governments taking on this style of accounting, normative accounting. Can you tell me more about that and how you came to this discovery? You begin to sort of begin these conversations and somebody says, you need to go and talk to X or talk to Y. And so I was really blessed to meet Ian Ball. And Ian is known as the father of public accounting, responsible for the first national balance sheet being put together in New Zealand. Joined AFAC, created the International Public Sector Accounting Standards. And as a lawyer, he did exactly what I would do. You take the current standards for corporates and you go, how do I change those? And I think that, excuse me, the definition of the asset is slightly different. It talks about economic and social benefits, but they're very, very similar. And all the standards we're using apply equally in public accounting. So one of the initiatives, and this is at the level of the G20 and the OECD and UNESCO, et cetera, is I want to have the same accounting principles and standards used within companies and countries. I don't want to have two regimes. I want to be able to compare and contrast and use them for policy purposes. So again, what we have is a similar but complementary regime. And almost amazingly, it's almost like the pieces were all laid down years ago and it just needed somebody to actually have those 700 failures actually to go and find where they were. But this was the final piece for me. And and I find it really exciting. Ian has been amazing with me. I was convinced at some stage he was going to tell me I was talking rubbish, but but he didn't. He didn't. And then he said, you've made this so simple. And yeah, there's the end of the story. So absolutely, we were convinced that this is something that could be, with work, harmonized to work for both companies and countries and cities and regions and and sectors, etc. The same principle should apply. It's a very exciting time. Was there anything we didn't get a chance to cover? Was there anything we missed out on? This is an inclusive journey. We want to give people the choice to come with us. I don't want the profession to stand there in three years' time and go, what on earth happened and where do I fit? I want people to embrace it. And it does need everybody. It just needs, to me, a progressive group. And we're putting those together gradually, people who think it's interesting, and young people, young accountants, get involved in this because it's not difficult, but it is profound. Wow, that's a great note for us to end on. Is there anything we can direct our audience to, to learn more? I guess the Rethinking Capital website, but anything specific? We've just refreshed our website. So you'll find on there two papers, uh, Constrained by Accounting and Constrained by Economics. So both talking about actually the problems of both those areas. It also, interestingly, makes it clear that the problem actually is economic theory. We've got a new paper coming out. It's called Changing the Rules of the Net Zero Game. And then Robert's book, Futuromics, is a wonderful beginning to understanding about the intangible economy. It's written by a grandfather writing to a granddaughter who's studying economics and can't understand why it doesn't apply in the real world. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Andrea. And thanks very much for hosting me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Because People Count, the Accountancy Europe podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and most podcasting apps. Get in touch. We are at AccountancyEU on Twitter, and you can contact me at Andrea at AccountancyEurope.eu. This podcast is presented and edited by Andrea Campbell with support from Yulia Keys. Our music is Fearless First by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. See you next time, because people count.